Gestational trophoblastic disease, or GTD, comprises a spectrum of interrelated conditions originating from the placenta. Other terms often used to refer to these conditions include gestational trophoblastic neoplasia and gestational trophoblastic tumor. Histologically distinct entities under this master category of GTD include complete and partial moles, invasive moles, gestational choriocarcinomas, and placental site trophoblastic tumors. In this episode, we're going to cover complete and partial hydatidiform moles, and we'll leave the cancerous variety like gestational choriocarcinomas, placental site trophoblastic tumor, and invasive moles for part two of this mini-series. Estimates for the incidence of various forms of gestational trophoblastic disease vary. In the U.S., hydatidiform moles are observed in anywhere from 1 in 600 therapeutic abortions to 1 in 1,500 pregnancies overall. Approximately 20% of patients will develop malignant sequelae requiring administration of chemotherapy after the evacuation of a mole. Most patients with postmolar gestational trophoblastic disease will have non-metastatic molar proliferation or invasive moles, but gestational choriocarcinomas, again, we'll cover that in part two, and metastatic disease can develop in some settings. Gestational choriocarcinoma occurs in about 1 in 20,000 to 1 in 40,000 pregnancies. Approximately 50% of gestational choriocarcinomas occur after term pregnancies. 25% happen after molar gestations and the remainder happen after all other gestational events, including miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies. Although much rarer than hydatidiform moles or gestational choriocarcinomas, placental site trophoblastic tumors can develop after any type of pregnancy. Let's get right into the classification of molar pregnancies. Partial and complete hydatidiform moles are distinct diseases with characteristic cytogenetic, histological, and clinical features. For example, in terms of the karyotype, a partial mole is most commonly triploid, like 69XXX or 69XXY. However, a complete mole is most commonly diploid, either 46XX or 46XY. Regarding the fetal structures, in a partial mole, it's often present, but in a complete mole, fetal tissue is absent. Regarding the amnion, it is usually present in a partial mole, but it is absent in a complete mole. In terms of clinical presentations, these do vary between a complete and a partial mole. For example, the diagnosis of a partial mole is typically done as a clinical missed abortion, but for a complete mole, it's typically evaluated because of bleeding and an ultrasound that has typical molar ultrasonographic findings, like the typical snowstorm appearance on that ultrasound. Regarding the uterine size, partial moles usually have a smaller for gestational age uterine size. However, complete moles can be up to 50% larger for the stated gestational age. Lastly, thecalutin cysts are typically rare after a partial mole, but they can occur in 15-25% to 25% of complete moles. 
Regarding postmolar malignant sequelae, partial moles only become malignant in about 5% or less of cases, but complete moles carry up to a 32% risk of postmolar malignant degeneration. On laboratory assessment, the average initial serum human chorionic gonadotropin levels are usually higher in patients with complete moles compared to partial moles. Medical complications of molar pregnancy, including pregnancy-induced hypertension, hyperthyroidism, anemia, and hyperemesis gravidarium are much more frequently seen among patients with complete moles. About 15 to 25% of patients with complete moles will have the thecalutin cyst that we've already discussed, with ovarian enlargements of possibly more than 6 centimeters. And as we discussed, don't forget, these patients have to be told, especially after a complete mole, that malignant sequelae can occur. The most common symptom of a molar pregnancy is abnormal bleeding. Pregnancy-induced hypertension in the first half of pregnancy, although uncommon, can be suggestive of a hydatidiform mole. Ultrasonography has replaced all other non-invasive means of establishing the diagnosis. Molar tissue is typically identified as a diffuse, mixed, echogenic pattern replacing the placenta produced by villi and intrauterine blood clots, but these findings may be subtle or lacking in cases of early, complete, or partial moles. Now, regarding the management after the evacuation of a mole, because remember that surgical evacuation of a suspected mole is still done by DNC as first-line care. Well, after that DNC is done, as long as HCG values are decreasing after that evacuation, there's no role for chemotherapy. However, if the HCG levels increase or they plateau over several weeks, immediate evaluation and treatment for malignant postmolar gestational trophoblastic disease are indicated. So here's the question. If you evacuate a mole, whether it's complete or partial, and the ACG levels do plateau, does the patient need another DNC? The answer is no. Repeat curatage is not recommended because it does not often induce remission or influence treatment and may result in uterine perforation and hemorrhage. Remember, if the levels plateau or rise, then the diagnosis is of malignant sequelae and that's a need for chemotherapy. Other indications for chemotherapy after evacuation of the mole include the histological diagnosis of choriocarcinoma. In other words, the pathologist calls you back and says it's not just a mole, it's actually choriocarcinoma. That requires chemotherapy, but we'll talk about that during part two. Or if the findings are invasive mole from findings from the urine curatage or the identification of clinical or radiographic evidence of metastasis, then chemotherapy is indicated. Of course, anytime that there's a plateau or a rise in ACG levels over multiple values, then a new intrauterine pregnancy should be ruled out first before jumping to the conclusion that chemotherapy is indicated. And the way that you rule out a new intrauterine pregnancy is, of course, based on the level of rise of the ACG and a pelvic uterine ultrasound.
four patients in whom a hydatidiform mole is suspected before evacuation, then the following tests are recommended. A CBC with platelet determination, clotting function studies, renal and liver function test, blood type and antibody screen. Of course, a baseline HCG level should have been done already and a pre-evacuation chest x-ray. Now, if the initial diagnosis is not of a mole, but you suspect an incomplete abortion or even a missed abortion, and the pathology report returns a high for mole after a DNC, then in these cases, patients should be monitored with serial determination of quantitative ACG values, and a baseline post-evacuation chest x-ray should be considered. As we discussed, the preferred method for evacuation is the suction DNC. Evacuation is usually performed with the patient under general anesthesia, but local or regional anesthesia may be used for a cooperative patient who has a small uterus. After serial dilation of the cervix, uterine evacuation is accomplished with the largest cannula that can be introduced through the cervix. In some cases, ultrasound guidance may facilitate complete evacuation of the uterus, and it is considered by some experts best practice to do this under ultrasound guidance. Pulmonary complications are frequently observed around the time of molar evacuation among patients with marked uterine enlargement. Although the syndrome of trophoblastic embolization or deportation has been emphasized as the underlying cause of respiratory distress following DNC, there are many other potential causes of pulmonary complications in these women. Respiratory distress syndrome can be caused by high output congestive heart failure caused by anemia or hyperthyroidism, preeclampsia, or iatrogenic fluid overload. So remember to keep fluid down in these patients. Thankfully, especially in patients with complete moles, the clinical hyperthyroidism and pregnancy-induced hypertension induced by the complete molar pregnancy usually abate promptly after evacuation of the mole, and they don't require specific therapy. Now, what about hysterectomy? Well, it sounds kind of drastic, but hysterectomy with preservation of the adnexa is an alternative to suction DNC for molar evacuation, but only in select patients who no longer desire childbearing. And, of course, to be honest, most actually stick with the DNC route. Hysterectomy reduces the risk of malignant postmolar sequelae compared with evacuation by DNC. However, the risk of postmolar gestational trophoblastic disease, even after a hist, still remains about 3 to 5%. So these patients should still be monitored post-op with serial 8CG determinations. After molar evacuation, it's important to monitor all patients carefully to diagnose and treat any malignant sequelae. This usually means that serum HCG levels should be obtained within 48 hours of evacuation and then ideally every one to two weeks while it's elevated and then once they go away completely, they need to be checked monthly for an additional six months. Use of reliable hormonal contraception is recommended while the HCG values are being trended down. Here's a clinical pearl. Although rare instances of long latent periods have been reported, most episodes of malignant sequelae after hydatidiform moles occur within approximately six months of evacuation. As we get to the end of the podcast, remember, we'll get to choriocarcinoma, an invasive mole, in the next episode. But what about the consideration of a patient that has both a hydatidiform mole and a fetus at the same time? 
Well, the coexistence of a fetus with molar changes of the placenta is relatively rare, and it occurs in about 1 in 22,000 to 1 in 100,000 pregnancies. Most of the literature covering this entity consists of case reports, small case series, and reviews of cases reported. For patients with coexisting hydatidiform moles and a fetus suspected from ultrasound findings, there are no clear guidelines for treatment. The ultrasound examination should re- be repeated to exclude retroplacental hematoma, other placental abnormalities, or a degenerating myoma, and to fully evaluate the fetal placental unit for evidence of a partial mole or gross fetal malformations. If the diagnosis is still suspected and continuation of the pregnancy desired, fetal karyotype should be obtained. A chest x-ray should be performed to look for METs and serial serum HCG value should be monitored. These patients are at increased risk for medical complications like bleeding, preterm labor, and pregnancy-induced hypertension that may require urgent uterine evacuation. These patients should be counseled about these risks and the increased chance of postmolar trophoblastic disease after evacuation or delivery. If the fetal karyotype is normal, major fetal malformations are excluded by ultrasound and there is no evidence of metastatic disease, then it's reasonable to allow the pregnancy to continue unless pregnancy-related complications force delivery. And after delivery, the placenta should be histologically evaluated and the patient should be closely followed with serial ACG values, similar to women who had a singleton hydatidiform mole evacuation. All right, podcast family, as the final note, patients should be counseled that after a mole and after the period of evaluation has been completed, they need to be told that the risk of a second mole in a subsequent pregnancy is about 1 to 2%. Early ultrasound examination is recommended for all future pregnancies. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. The resources for this podcast comes from the ACOG Practice Bulletin number 53 on the diagnosis and treatment of gestational trophoblastic disease and is also found in the journal Gynecology Oncology. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.